0: Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Thanks for uh, making it to church today on uh, the every preacher's most favorite Sunday. It's spring forward and spring break beginning. And so... Um, we are thankful that we have the opportunity to stream which I trust many of our families are taking opportunity to use this morning I know that uh, I had to drag my three-year-old out of bed this morning she was very confused where that hour went no one told her that this was going to be happening uh, but we did enjoy a beautiful sunrise on the way to church this morning um, my name is Scott Gilliland I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lovers Lane uh, and on behalf of Reagan Gilliland my wife who is also a co-pastor with With me with this service, we just want to say welcome to Thrive. Uh, Here at Lovers Lane, our mission is loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that if this is your first Sunday with us, you certainly experience that mission come to life in your worship with us this morning. Uh, we are beginning a new sermon series today to to uh, kick off our Sunday worship services for Lent. Uh, obviously, uh, this is not the first day of Lent. If you're a church season nerd, um, you were able to come to our Ash Wednesday services this past week. Um, if you're not unfamiliar with Lent, it's a six week uh, season leading up to Easter that is a tradition in the church, and Methodists follow that tradition. Uh, and it starts with what we call Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday, uh, this past Wednesday. It's a day when we remember uh, that we are dust, that uh, we have need of Jesus, um, and, and that uh, one day without the hope and love and grace of God, you know, we, we perish. And, and it was also my birthday on Wednesday. And so people said, you know, Scott, what'd you do for your birthday? I said, I con- contemplated my own mortality and sin. It was great. It was a really, really great 31st birthday. So um, we are beginning this season of Lent with the sermon series that we have called From Empty to Overflowing. Um, Because there's this theme throughout Scripture uh, that really kind of culminates in the gospel story of Jesus, this theme of emptiness leading to overflowing of God's Spirit, that that emptiness isn't always a bad thing. In fact, it's in those empty places, in that self-emptying that God meets us, greets us as a friend, and where God's work really begins to shine. And so we'll be working towards Easter Sunday with that theme in mind. Uh, today, I want to begin talking about when I was um, 15 years old, uh, I first felt a call to ministry, and I went and I spoke to uh, some leaders, pastors uh, and leaders in my church, and I remember so many of them saying to me, um, Scott, are you sure you want to be a Methodist pastor because this is a sinking ship? Oh, well, that's a hopeful word for a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed 15-year-old that just felt you know, God calling him to ministry at a youth conference. Scott, are you sure you want to be a Methodist? preacher, pastor, because, you know, this is kind of a sinking ship. Like many denominations, you know, we're not experiencing our our heyday right now. Maybe you want to be one of those non-denominational preachers. I mean, their churches are pretty big. They're doing pretty good. Um, And and I remember at the time wrestling with that and wrestling through college with that and ultimately God leading me to a place that, yeah, I mean, I'm a Methodist through and through, and that's the church that I want to serve. That's the denomination I want to serve. And, And then a couple of weeks ago happened where we had this general conference thing. And and just so you know, we're going to be talking about that a little bit today, but we're going to be talking about also our own personal lives, because I think that our lives and the life of the church are deeply connected on a Sunday like today. Um, We had this meeting. Maybe you have no idea what's been going on, and God bless you, I wish I didn't either. Um, We had a meeting in St. Louis where 864 delegates from around the world represent the Methodist church. They gathered. They were supposed to resolve uh, our Increasing tension and debate surrounding uh, human sexuality, specifically inclusion of LGBT people through weddings and through ordination, and. Um in large part the conference did not do what we had hoped it would do in fact it, it didn't do what we had hoped it would do uh, our church had been one of many uh, in support of this vision called a one church plan that did not pass instead uh, the the conference passed what they called the traditional plan and uh, it moved us attempted to move us further to the right if you will although I hate that kind of language and that labeling uh, but it tried to move us in a more conservative direction uh, it, functionally it accomplished nothing because almost everything in the plan will be ruled unconstitutional, that's when you know you're doing really good legislative work, when you know you're passing something that's never going to be implemented. Good job, general conference. Um, Sorry, can you tell I'm a little sarcastic this morning? So, um, now what did happen is there was a lot of emotional and spiritual um, brutality uh, that that occurred. Uh, I don't think anybody left excited. Uh, I think, in fact, a lot of people left really grim about the future of United Methodism. In fact, here's some of the things that I heard people say. We just watched the divorce papers get filed. They've thrown a grenade into the house on their way out. The house will burn down to the foundation. And lastly, I heard people say, this is never going to get better. Hmm brought me back to 15-year-old Scott, wondering if maybe the leaders in my life were, were wrong. You know, were they actually right after all? Um, there's this spirit, I would say insidious spirit of hopelessness that I think is trying, is trying to find a home in United Methodism right now. Um, and today I want to talk about that. Because like I said, I think our lives and the life of the church can be deeply connected. And I don't know about you, but have... I've been in seasons of hopelessness in my own life. Have you? Like, maybe you don't care the first thing about what happens to the United Methodist Church as a domination. That's fine. That's fine. I get that, like, I'm very invested in this because it's it's my calling, it's my ministry, it's my life. Uh, But even if you couldn't care less about what happened in St. Louis, I want to ask you, have you ever experienced a season of hopelessness in your life? where you felt like the walls were crumbling, where the house was burning down, where you felt like it was never going to get better. So I want to talk about that today. The question I want us to address today as we talk about going from empty to overflowing is as a people of faith, how do we respond to seasons of hopelessness? Because if our Christian faith can't say something during a season of hopelessness, then I don't know how valuable it really is. I need my faith to be able to speak something into my life during those seasons of hopelessness. So today we're going to be looking to help us answer this question, a text that, this is a text that Stan suggested that we work with this week, and I was really thankful he did because it's been a godsend for my life this week. We're going to look at a text found in the book of Jeremiah. And if you know nothing about the Bible, we're just going to pretend like we know nothing about the Bible. Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bible with you, you can flip open to it. It's in the second half of the Old Testament. Um, and uh, Jeremiah is a prophet. This is one of our prophetic texts. And, and, and what a prophet is, simply put, is, so, is not like a psychic or like a soothsayer, right? We kind of think prophet, we think people that are, you know, they, they, their eyes go cloudy and they start to predict the future, and that's not really what a prophet does. A prophet is someone who's able to look at the, the, the culture, the society, the world that they live in, and they can analyze it, and they can see things that the average person doesn't see, and, and they can see where the culture, the society, the world is heading, And usually it's not a great place. What they see is they see a really dark future for their people. And they're able to understand why it is they're heading in that direction. And usually it's born out of sin, both societal, communal sin and and personal sin. So in the Old Testament, frequently the prophets are telling the people, you're you're not considering the poor or the oppressed or the widow or the orphan. You're not taking care of those who are underprivileged. Um, and also, you yourselves are engaged in, in, in immorality, and so this, this world that we're living in, our people are heading in a bad direction. And then they say, but here's the good news, is that if we can make some changes, then God's going to lead us in a much better direction. If, if we're able to address some of these communal sins and personal sins, then here's the bright, shining future we could go to if only we could change, right? And we all know human beings are not stubborn, Right? The prophet is not always well-liked. In fact, frequently prophets are despised. Jeremiah fits that bill. He'd been preaching this prophetic word to the people of, at that time, Judah, which is a part of what's now Israel, right? Um, He was preaching this prophetic word to the kingdom of Judah, and for years and years, and he's telling them that that God's going to hand them over to the Babylonian empire, the Babylonian Empire is the big, mighty, fierce, strong empire. They're expanding in their region, and they're at the gate. They're, they're, they're ready to conquer uh, Judah. And, and Jeremiah says, it's going to happen. God's going to hand us over. And the king of Judah doesn't like that very much. right? If you're the king of Judah, you don't like the fact that there's this prominent prophet that's telling everyone that you're about to not be king anymore. And so he imprisons him, essentially for sedition, for encouraging rebellion and uprising. right? And so... I, Jeremiah, right before the text we're about to read, he's taken captive by King um, Zedekiah. And he's placed in in a courtyard in Jerusalem, and in fact, if you read the Hebrew, you could even read that he was kept in like this archery range of a courtyard, because the Bible loves a good metaphor, right? Jeremiah is being attacked. He's in the archery range of a courtyard inside Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is under siege by the Babylonian Empire. In fact, we've got got an artist rendition of Jerusalem being under siege. We can see on the screens, I think. Hopefully, yeah, so this is the image that, that I want you to see in your mind as we 're about to read this scripture. Now, now, if you look up this piece of art later, this is actually a Roman siege of jerusalem don 't send me an email. I know it 's not historically one hundred percent accurate, but this is kind of the picture, right trust me we 've got some history nerds that will like correct me on this kind of stuff. Um, this is essentially the picture that we need to imagine. Imagine somewhere in that city, in a courtyard, in an archery range. Is Jeremiah, and that's when we read what we're about to read. Let's go to God in prayer as we prepare to hear scripture this morning. Gracious God, how often do we feel under siege? The things that we love under attack. God, in our life, we experience seasons of hopelessness. Where we hear the fire crackling. and We feel darkness surrounding us, and we wonder if it's ever going to get better. And so, God, we turn to your word this morning. Some of us out of desperation, because we need a word from you. We need your light to shine through. We need something to pierce this hopelessness that's trying to take our spirits. And so God, as we prepare to hear a story this morning that I imagine many of us have never heard before, God, I just ask that you would help it to leap off the screens and off the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts, because this is a word that could change the way that we live. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So the city's on fire. The siege is happening. In fact, I want to just leave this up while I read this to you, okay? Okay. This is where this story takes place. Jeremiah says this. Hear the, the fire. Hear the wailing. Right? The Lord's word came to me. Now we know he's going to say something about this, right? Your cousin, Hanamel, Shalom's son, is on his way to see you. And when he arrives, he will tell you, By my field in Anathoth. For by law, you are next in line to purchase it. Really? And just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel showed up at the prison quarters and told me, buy my field in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for you are next in line and have a family obligation to purchase it. Is this the best time, cousin? Then I was sure this was the Lord's doing. So I bought the field in Anathoth, you know, the, the field that's outside that burning city. Yeah, he bought that from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. Now, in case you're wondering if this is sort of an allegorical story, it's not because Scripture's about to go into way too much detail. I signed the deed and sealed it, had it witnessed and weighed up the silver on the scales. Then I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy with its terms and conditions and the unsealed copy, this is all in the Bible, and gave it to Baruch, Neriah's son and Masaiah's grandson before my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses named in the deed, as well as before all the Judeans who were present and the prison quarters, I charge Baruch before all of them, the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel proclaims, take these documents, this sealed deed of purchase along with the unsealed one, and put them into a clay container so that they will last a long time. The Lord of heavenly forces, the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel proclaims, houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. The word of God for the people of God, let us say. Thanks be to God. What a weird Bible, right? Like in case you ever thought the Bible was boring, especially the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not boring. Occasionally in the middle of a siege, one of the most momentous events in the history of Israel, Jeremiah is buying real estate. It's like the worst possible time. If you're a real estate agent in the room, you're probably squirming. You're like, you're not going to get your money back on that one, bud. That's a bad buy. That's a bad buy. Your land's on fire. You're buying a field that is on fire. But Jeremiah hears God telling him to invest in this field. And this isn't like a figurative investment like the Scripture makes clear. He had witnesses. He had deeds, sealed and unsealed. And he puts his self, his stake, prophets weren't rich people. He puts his 17 pieces of silver down and says, God's telling me to buy this field. Why in the world, in the middle of a siege, does the Bible, does the book of Jeremiah make clear that Jeremiah is buying real estate? Why would he invest himself in a losing situation like that? Or more generally, we could ask, when our life begins to look like this, why shouldn't we just throw in the towel and call it quits? Because that would be the sensible and easy thing to do. So there's two things that this scripture uh, became points of light for me this week, two things that jumped out that I want to share with you this morning. The first is this, to survive the present, we have to trust in the promise, This is something that Jeremiah understands, and it's why he has no problem investing in what God tells him to invest in. To survive the present, we have to trust in the promise. So in addition to this being a weird season of general conference and general conference hangover, as some of my colleagues have called it, um, it's also wedding season. Which is fun, right? Wedding season is fun. Um, I we do a lot of weddings here at Lovers Lane. I think people just like the name. Um, It looks good on the invitation. Uh, We have a lot of couples coming in from outside the church. Um, Right now, there's like five different couples that I'm working with. Uh, It gets a little crazy at times. I got a couple of my very best friends. They are each having weddings in the next uh, month and a half. So that's super exciting. Um, And one of my favorite things to do in wedding season is is one of my favorite parts of that is I get to walk through uh, the premarital counseling process with uh, couples. And it's just so much fun to get to know each other uh, in that way. And and one of the best parts of premarital counseling is uh, when we get to talk about conflict. You know, because uh, I'll, I'll ask couples, you know, how, how often do you guys fight, you know? And the worst answer they can give me is, oh, we've, ne- we've never fought. Like, oh, one of you is super unhappy and you're just not saying anything. Um, or both of you are, right? Um, and, and one thing I try to make clear in married couples in the room, you know this to be true, that the most healthy and successful marriages are not the ones that avoid conflict, it's the ones that work through it really well, right? And so we get to talk about conflict resolution. And, and, and one of the things I tell them and it's been true in my own life, is you know, there, there's this shift that happens from dating into marriage. When you make those vows, you stand before someone, and you make these promises, you make this covenant, you're looking in their eyes, and you're telling them that you're, you're in it for life, and you're not going anywhere. And, you know, there's this shift that happens because in dating, you know, when you get into a fight... There's that sort of dating fear of like, oh my gosh, is this going to be the end of us? Is this going to be the last fight? Oh, geez, can we survive this, right? makes me think of that Friends episode where where, uh, Monica and Chandler fight, and Chandler just assumes it's over, and she's like, what? This isn't over, you know? Um, There's this sort of fear when you're dating that, oh my gosh, this is it. And and there's a gift, there's a freedom in marriage, a really healthy, strong marriage that you know that your partner's not going anywhere. In fact, you can get really, really mad at each other and survive it. In fact, you can even go to bed angry and, and survive. There are plenty of times that, that Reagan and I have had to sit in that uncomfortability of being frustrated with one another, and yet we knew that we're not going anywhere. There's a freedom when you trust in that promise, when you trust in that covenant. Jesus talks about his, God's relationship with the church and God's relationship with us personally in, in a metaphor of marriage and of bridegroom and bride. And, and what he means by that is he's talking about this very thing. He's talking about the, the, the covenant that God makes with us, the, the promise of love that God makes with us, that no matter what happens, God is not going anywhere. And that can be a hard thing to accept, because I think sometimes we just feel like we're kind of dating God, you know? That, that oh, geez, when, when things get really bad, where did, oh, maybe, God, maybe God's gone. Maybe God's given up on me. Maybe God's given up on the church. But I'm reminded in Jeremiah's story, and I'm reminded when I go back to read the words of Jesus, that, that God sees the church and God sees me personally the same way that I understand my marriage covenant, that God's not going anywhere. And on weeks like this, I need to hear that. In seasons of hopelessness, I need to hear that. I need to hear that, you know, God didn't look down and say, I will be with the cross and flame of the United Methodist Church in eternity. You know I mean? God didn't make this promise to us locally. God made this promise generally. But I need to hear that, that God says the church is how I'm going to bring about good work in the world. There is no kingdom of God vision without the church being there. Right? God's going to take care of God's church. Now, that we might have seasons of growth and seasons of decline. We might have seasons of health and seasons of brokenness. We might have brands spring up and brands fall away, but God's church is a part of this promise. God's church is a part of this vision. And then more personally, maybe what you need to hear this morning is that God's promise for you is that he has your life in his hands. Now, I'm not talking about the life here on earth. We just, we just had Ash Wednesday service. Life here on earth is dusty. We're dusty people, and there's mortality, and there's death. But I'm talking about the eternal life that God has promised to each and every one of us. The eternal life that doesn't get shaken by the things of this world. No matter what this world throws at us, maybe this week the world threw everything it had at you. And maybe what you need to hear this morning is that God is promised to hold your life in his hands. That nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God. If that's a good word for you this morning, can you say amen? I feel like I might be preaching. Okay. I think Jeremiah is able to invest himself in this land, as silly as that might seem, because he knows that even though he will probably never see the glory, he'll never see Judah restored. Jeremiah is long dead by the time the exile is over. He knows that God has not lifted up the Israelite people, lifted up the Judean people, only to have them be extinguished by the Babylonians. He knows that. He knows that, yeah, we're about to enter into a difficult season, a brutal season, but God is going to restore us because God has got us in his hands. And so I'm going to invest in this, even though I might never see it here on earth, I know that God's promises are real. Which leads me to the second point. The second thing I hear Jeremiah screaming to me this week, number two, our faith transforms seasons of hopelessness into seasons of change. Our faith transforms what we want to see as a season of hopelessness, and instead we can see it as a season of change. So there's really two characters in this story. Um, There's Jeremiah who gets named a lot. But the other character that's not really in the picture, but I can see him throughout this, is King Zedekiah. Now, King Zedekiah is the Judean king who who imprisoned Jeremiah. And he and Jeremiah are approaching this siege and this season very differently. King Zedekiah doesn't want to listen to the word of God proclaimed through Jeremiah. He doesn't want to hear that things are bad. He doesn't want to hear that things have gone too far. He doesn't want to hear that he's not going to be king anymore. He doesn't want to hear that his glory is about to be diminished. And so he imprisons Jeremiah because he's he's enraged and he's frustrated and he's just got this hard-heartedness that happens when we refuse to listen to the word of God in our life. But Jeremiah is at peace. Jeremiah is imprisoned in an archery range in the courtyard of a city on fire, and he's at peace, and he can buy real estate. So what is it about the way they see this situation that allows them to respond so differently? I think Jeremiah understands three really important things when he looks at what's happening to his people. Number one, he understands that it is not good, but God is with them. It is not good... But God is with them. Number two, he understands that change is coming. Nothing is going to stop the Babylonians from conquering us at this point. They are too big. They are too strong. God is allowing this to happen. He's handing us over. We can unpack that whole theology another Sunday. But uh, this is going to happen, right? This is going to happen. Change is coming. Number three, it is not the end. Let's see those on the screens. It is not good, but God is with them. God is with us, he says. Change is coming. It is not the end. Now, these three simple things allow Jeremiah to see this siege, to live in it, to understand it, and to not be thrown into hopelessness by it. But King Zedekiah, if you flip them, you begin to understand King Zedekiah's perspective and his character. King Zedekiah is thinking to himself, this is not good, and God has abandoned us or more personally God has abandoned me I'm the king shouldn't God be in support of me number two hopelessness is coming see when you're the king of Judah and Judah falls and when your whole life is about sitting on that throne and your whole life is about your own personal glory and righteousness then when Babylon's at the gate it feels like hopelessness is at the gate Which finally leads to Zedekiah number three. This is the end. Because if I'm not king, and if my kingdom falls, then life as we know it is over. And you can begin to understand why Zedekiah is driven by this rage, by this frustration, by this hard-heartedness. Because he doesn't see what Jeremiah sees when he looks at what could be a hopeless situation. Jeremiah sees a situation that's not good, but a situation that God is still with them in. Jeremiah sees a situation that simply means life is changing, and maybe changing in a brutal way. I don't want to minimize seasons of hopelessness. Babylon conquering the Judeans is not a good thing. It's a hard thing, but it doesn't mean it's the end. It's just changing. And lastly, it's not the end. It's not the end. God's people are not done. God's promise is not done. God's story is not done. And so how can we, how will we respond? How will we respond as a church? How will we respond as individuals when we encounter seasons that look hopeless? Because I think the Bible here in a really silly story about real estate in the midst of a siege, it offers us two very different paths with two very different end results. We can either find ourselves like Zedekiah, lost in that feeling of abandonment, enraged at the fact that hopelessness is at the gate, and just lost in the fact that this is the end, everything's over. And and that's a brutal place to be, and I've been in those kind of positions before. I've been Zedekiah before. Have you? It's not fun. Or will we be Jeremiah? Will we look at a situation that is bad and say, God is still with us? Can we look at a situation that is brutal and say, life is changing, and sometimes, pardon me, church, crap hits the fan. Yeah. (laughs) But most importantly, God's promises mean that it's never the end until God says so. It's never the end until God says so. So, church, as we move forward, I know that uh, here's where I want to talk a little bit more directly about, um, about moving forward from general conference. I, I know that you may have a lot of questions for those of you who are following this, who care about this. First of all, I hope that you were able to watch the town hall, either in person or you can go online. Uh, we had a town hall meeting last Sunday at 6 o'clock. Where Pastor Stan, a a lay person in our church named Don Wiley, uh, who was actually an alternate delegate to General Conference, Uh, he was here, um, and a few of our other pastors were able to field some questions and offer some responses and some insight into what all this means. I don't want to get into all of that right now. Um, I encourage you to go on. We have the whole video archive for you to watch online, Uh, so I encourage you to do that. Number two, I want to encourage you to, to breathe to know that, that what we here at Lovers Lane are going to be doing is entering into a season of prayer and discernment. That's what we said before it happened. We knew that this general conference could have many outcomes, and we said no matter what happens, we're going to be entering into a season of prayer and discernment. And so you're going to see a lot of people responding uh, to what's happened in General Conference. And you're going to see headlines like, uh, the United Methodist Church is going to split. Or you're going to see pictures of churches who are protesting the United Methodist Church and covering up their signs. And I understand why churches do that. And, and, and we're not going to be a church that does that. Um, personally, I don't like the idea of anybody telling me what my United Methodist Church means. Because I've been in this church for a long time. And I'll be darned if someone's going to take it from me. But anyways, that's off the script. Um, I want you to enter into a season of prayer and discernment with us. I want you to try and be as non-anxious as possible. Um, There is a lot of moving pieces involved with this, and there is a lot of movement and response coming after this. There are a lot of phenomenal leaders throughout our country. You know, 70% of the U.S. delegates voted in support of the One Church Plan. Um, By and large, the United States United Methodist Church is on the same page when it comes to the, the, the vision that we see for who we want to be. There's a lot of work being done between now and 2020, which is our next gathering. Um, And so I want you to know that your pastoral staff, your lay leadership, we are aware of this, we're involved in these conversations, and we're going to keep you as informed as we possibly can uh, because we know that, that headlines are designed to send us into kind of a tailspin. There's nothing that sells papers more than a hopeless headline, right? The last thing I want us to do is I want us to be Jeremiah in this. I want us to know that, that St. Louis was not good, but God is still with us. That, yes, life is changing. United Methodism is going to be changing. There's, it's just, it's just the, the, the state of who we are as a church. And lastly, this is not the end, church. You know, I, I was so thankful that we... By the grace of God, you know what's funny is on Tuesday afternoon uh, at General Conference when it was all done and there was sort of a pall over the, the, the Coliseum because I'm telling you, nobody left happy. Um, I had a couple of colleagues say, so, I mean, you know, how are you guys going to address this on Sunday? I said, we're starting a capital campaign. <laughs> and that was their response. They're like, that's really dumb. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, point taken. Um, but it turns out it's not. Uh, number one is we're going to buy a field, right? No, not not literally. We're not buying any land. And was like, wait, we're buying more land? No, no, uh, metaphorically. At this point, um, we are reinvesting in who we are as a church. But I think most importantly, we came together. We had planned months ago to have this joint worship service last week that if you weren't here, my gosh, you missed out. Don't miss the next one. I promise you. It was awesome. Um, but we gathered in, a spa- in, in the sanctuary, and we had almost 800 people uh, in that sanctuary. And you know what? We had about 800 people voting at general conference. And I'll tell you a lot about who I was more interested in spending time with by the end of that week. Um, We had about almost 800 people in the sanctuary packed out. We had um, all of our worship services combined. And we got to remember who it is that we are, that God has called us to be, and what God has been doing at Lover's Lane for 75 years. This is not the end, church. I think it's the perfect time to turn our eyes to the next 75 I think it's the perfect time to reinvest ourselves in the work that God is doing here locally at 9200 Inwood Road in Dallas, Texas. Because our larger system is broken. We've suspected it's been broken for a while, and we had that confirmed. But God and God's work is not broken here at Lover's Lane. And so these next six weeks, we're going to be talking more about that. We're talking about more about how we feel God is asking us to reinvest ourselves in the work so that God's ministry can continue here at Lover's Lane for the next 75 years. But beyond the capital campaign, and I hope that you are led to participate in that, I want us this season of Lent to adopt a Jeremiah mindset. This is what I'm going to leave you with. I want us this season of Lent to wake up each day and try to put on our Jeremiah eyes as we look at a world that is broken around us. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Every morning, I'm going to wake up, uh, and when I'm brushing my teeth or shaving my face or drinking my cup of coffee, I'm going to say this prayer. I'm going to put it up on the screens. Maybe I'll have it on a Post-it note on my bathroom mirror. I'm going to say this prayer. God, let me be empty so I can overflow with your hope. Show me a field worth buying today. I'm going to say this prayer. It's a simple prayer. If you want to screenshot it, go for it. If you want to email me later for it, go for it. I want to ask you to join me in this practice because what, what I mean by this, I'm going to pray this prayer and what I'm going to be asking God to do is I'm going to be asking God to lead me through my day that day and to show me when there is a field worth buying in my life. And by that I mean show me where there's an opportunity for me to invest in the broken world around me. And maybe this is a really big way or maybe it's a really small way. Sometimes I hear God tell Telling me to put all the grocery carts back in the holder in the parking lot because people that just leave them all over the parking lot. I think those are the those might be the goblins of Satan. I don't know. Like, what, what? It's right there. There's like eight of them in the parking. Just put them. And so I just I put them back. I don't judge. I just put them back. Maybe God is leading you to call up a friend and reconcile to reconcile a friendship that's been broken for far too long. Maybe God is calling you to extend extra grace to someone that does not deserve it. Maybe God is calling you to give financially to a cause that you find worthy. Maybe God is calling you to buy the Starbucks for the person behind you in line. I don't know what this is going to be. That's the beauty of prayer and the beauty of faith. But I want to challenge all of us to wake up each day and to ask God to show us a field worth buying so that we could empty ourselves and instead overflow with God's hope. To invest in a broken world, trusting that God's promises will be made real through our efforts, both big and small. It's a joy to be your pastor, and I'm excited about this season of Lent. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your words for us this day. God, those of us who find ourselves in hopeless places, allow the story of Jeremiah to ring loud in our ears today. Allow us to remember that your promises will be made real, that sometimes life does not go the way that we want it to, that frequently we remember that we are dust are with us and things are never hopeless they're simply changing our lives are in your hands and God it is never the end until you say it is God we give you thanks for the mission you have set us on here at Lover's Lane God, we give you thanks for the fact that we get to come to a church where every person's gifts and graces are celebrated. Where we're not a church of just one type of person, but we are one people made up of many types of people. God, we give you thanks that we have a home that we can bring our friends to and we can trust that they will be celebrated. God, we give you thanks that we have a church that sees your sacredness in every person. All races, all nations, every language, all abilities, all sexualities. Remind us who we are today, God. Remind us whose we are today, God that our mission has come from you, that for 75 years you have been at work in this church. And there's no way you're stopping now. All of this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, whose image and life guides and directs us, and whose gift saves us. In his name we pray, amen.